Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We pull the fun one out of the archives this week. It is a look at the Giza Plateau, uh, specifically Cheops Pyramid, which in our uh, author's uh, point of view has been weaponized thousands of years ago in an ancient war for Earth. It could have hints of the Mahabharata, the, the great Hindu war that we've presented before, but we have a different take. There's some bits and pieces from the Mahabharata here, but this is a look at a machine in the form of a pyramid that had powerful bean weaponry used in a galactic war that is devastating. Our program today is based on the book the Giza Death Star by my guest, Joseph Farrell, recorded in 2017. This is Earth Ancient Special Edition, The Archives. Monday, February 27, 2023. This is Earth Ancients, Special Edition, The Archives. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. got a good one for you today. We uh, delve into the archives and found an interview I did in October of 2017 with Joseph Farrell, who in the previous few years had written a book called The Giza Death Star. And I wanted him on the program because he's a very well-researched uh, author, very bright guy. And he uh, had taken a great deal of data from Chris Dunn. Robert Schock, and a whole bunch of other people that I admired and wrote this book based on his understanding that there were ancient wars, ancient pyramid wars that were outlined in Zechariah Sitchin's books. And it's, it's, uh, it's speculative, and he uh, leaves, us, leaves us with a, a really good hypothesis for 
the the Great Pyramid, the Cheops Pyramid for uh, being a machine. And uh, in 2017, I hadn't I had not visited Giza yet. It was the following year, and so I was still ignorant to the fact that this is a possibility, you know, because in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, you know, this pyramid could have been a tomb. Well, in 2018, when we did our first Grand Egyptian tour with Mohammed Imbrium, I got to go inside the interior of this uh, monolith, this artificial pyramid, and it changed me. And I can see why it, if you're an engineer, if you're a physicist, if you're any kind of uh, civil, uh, uh, in the civil engineering or, or construction work, you go in there and you see the level of precision. And this is the whole bit that Chris Dunn brings to light in his book, The Giza Power Plant, is the fact that this great Cheops pyramid is a machine. And so this interview you're going to hear today from Joe Farrell uh, from his book, The Giza Death Star, outlines the engineering possibilities of it being a, a powerful beam technology weapon. And what he shows us is the proof in neighboring areas of the Death Star's a powerful beam hitting the ground and he actually uh, shows us evidence of the sand that surrounds much of the Giza Plateau being uh, heated, turns it into molten glass. So he has a number of, the, of examples of that. He also really does a nice job pulling up evidence from uh, old documents that I was unfamiliar with. It's, it's really quite a fun read. <laughs> and if... If the Cheops Pyramid was a weapon, it's really missing a lot of parts. And this is one of the things that Chris uh, Dunn brings up is the fact that when you study the interior chambers, which is the gut of the machine, it has been ransacked over the centuries, thousands of years, very likely. Every internal part Anything that is uh, freestanding, easy to remove, has been taken out. And what's left is a shell. And, you know, the other thing is uh, Robert Baval in his book on, on the, the pyramid says the same thing. And Baval is an engineer. He says, the precision is in place because you cannot have a weapon or a device that is uh, made from loo loosely fitted granite blocks. It has to be high-level technology. And Farrell picks up on this today in this interview uh, from his book, The Giza Death Star. Now, I, I uh, enjoyed the interview, but I, I question uh, a great deal about this war. I hadn't read the uh, Mahabharata verses and... Uh, got more clarity on the great Hindu war that's written about. And many people believe that the Egyptians were part of that war. And I think that the Maya were around and probably one of the older races that were around and was part of that war too. They call it by a different name, uh, but it's all considered a global war. It's a global war 
And uh, if you read the Mahabharata, it also had a ET uh, element to it. So there were ETs involved fighting for ownership of the earth, fighting for the dominant civilization of earth. And this uh, pyramid was a machine that was built, according to Farrell, to uh, be a devastating beam weapon uh, that when you turn the thing on, it was it was really, really potent in its uh, destructiveness. So now one of the things that I have come to understand is that uh, when it comes to ancient buildings, when you look at it from a multidisciplinary approach, that means engineers, that means uh, chemists, that means uh, other kinds of science, you get different descriptions, different impressions. And because we don't know how the Great Cheops Pyramid was built, we don't know how the Red, the Bent, and the other uh, pyramids, the Saqqara, the Dozier Pyramid, was built, or for what purpose. You know, it's like, are are these standing stones? Are these standing markers? Are these uh, mementos, memorials? What what are they? Uh, When you you have the level of precision that is included in most of these pyramids, and I've been very lucky uh, to be able to see these up close and personal, they are engineering highlights. They're engineering uh, prowess on display. Somebody developed a high level of, of science, pyramid science, and executed these standing stones that raise 300 plus feet in the air. And they are, they are technology. And why the Egyptological community keeps considering them tombs when if you go inside of them, especially the red and the bent pyramid, there is nothing. There's, first of all, you can't get anything down there. It's so small. What we, what we, how we enter the interior of these pyramids is through what is considered a maintenance shaft, and it's small little three foot square. Well, maybe a little bigger than square, three foot access points uh, into the guts of these pyramids, and once you get into them. A number of acoustic engineers have, uh, have uh, commented on they are uh, uh, cut and designed in such a way that they are freq- frequency resonators of some kind. And and I'm talking about the bent and the red pyramid now, and, and it kind of goes for the the Cheops pyramid, the Great Pyramid as well, is there? there's parts missing. There's machines that are missing. There's uh, housing that supports technology that's missing. So we don't know how they worked, but we do know that they are not tombs. And when we hear Zahi Hawass and Mark Lerner and these other Egyptologists tell us these things, it's like, well, what are you, uh, is that what somebody wrote? Well, yeah, some people did write that. The, the last d- dynasties wrote that. But they, were, they inherited these things. They inherited the pyramids. And it's becoming more evident that uh, people like Ramsey II, who everyone thinks is this great builder, he inherited a tremendous amount of of, uh, information and technology and pyramids, temples, and statuary. We're going to visit Memphis uh, this coming May. And by the way, we do have a few places left (laughs) if you want to join us. We're going to be in Memphis to see this monstrous 33-plus-foot-tall 
sculpture of supposedly Ramsey II. And one of the big things that I always laugh about, well, pardon me, I don't laugh. I, I kind of chuckle is that if you look at all these statues, these monstrous uh, monolithic multi-ton behemoths who are attributed to Ramses, they have a very, that they don't look like him. If you look at his, his mummy, he had a very pointed nose, pointed chin, very angular face. These figures are very rounded and oval in their appearance. They're, these monstrous statues look like Pillsbury Doughboys, very bulbous and uh, round. But one of the things that Chris Dunn brings up in his books are is that they're all very, very similar, especially the, the monsters that are over, you know, uh, two to 500 tons each. They're, they're very like, they, they all look the same. The faces all look the same. So in his book, The Giza Death Star, he kind of parallels the pyramid wards that are outlined in Zachariah Sitchin's books and also Chris Dunn, Robert Schock, Graham Hancock. He kind of takes bits and pieces of all those people and, and, and others and creates a scenario thousands of years in the past and highlights the not only the destructive force of the pyramid, but other weaponry. He doesn't get into the alien side too much, but he does get into the technology and the use of this pyramid. So our program today is the Giza Death Star with the author Joseph Farrell. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
So I'm on the lookout on a regular basis for new information about our ancient past. Uh, I have a fascination with the Maya. Most of you know that my interests are heavily focused towards Central and South America. But the Middle East has also been a fascination, and you cannot think of the Middle East without consideration of the Giza Plateau, where there are pyramids, uh, there is a sphinx, and there's other clues to, to Earth's ancient past. And recently I got my hands on quite a fascinating uh, book that had a twist. The book's <laughs> called Giza Death Star. And when I read that, I thought, well, what's, what could this be about? The cover has an image of the, of the Sphinx. And I had no reference to this at all. So I, I got a copy of the book. And I got to tell you, this is an amazing piece of work. And I, see, I say that with all honesty and uh, forthright truth because uh, my guest today has done not only in-depth research into the inner workings, he takes uh, a whole different look at this and uses terms like paleo-ancients, uh, which we're going to ask him about in a second, looks at the Giza pyramid, the Cheops pyramid, and perhaps the surrounding pyramids, not as a tomb, not as what Chris Dunn likes to say, a functioning power plant. How that worked, we just don't know, but he wrote an entire book based on that. But that a pre-dynastic group created this pyramid as a weapon. And you might think to yourself, well, what the heck is that all about? Why would they want to do that? Well, we're going to find out today. Uh, my guest today is Joseph Farrell, and Joe is a, uh, he's got a degree in biblical studies and philosophy, and also uh, historical and theological studies, and a PhD, we're going to have to ask him what this is, in patristic studies, and I, I'm going to have to ask him about that. Joe, Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Now, what is the PhD in? Tell me what the breakdown <laughs> is in that. Uh, the subject is patristics. That's the study of the um, church fathers and how they came up with the various doctrines um, in the church. It's It sounds like a terribly <laughs> narrow degree, but it actually is not, because in order to do it, you have to have uh, several languages. You have to know a lot about history, classical philosophy, and so on. And it's a very good, it's a very good degree for teaching you how to analyze texts, which is principally what I do in most of my books. I'm kind of a documents researcher, so uh, it was really good training for that. It's it's really an interdisciplinary degree, even though it sounds very specialized. <laughs> oh, well, with this the theological studies, it's almost like you should have taken the next step and become a minister. Is that was that a consideration, or is it like no, I'm going to stay away from the church. I don't need that. <laughs> well, well, that depends on which time period of my life you're talking about. <laughs> but, yeah, but I did. Uh, I did go on to teach seminary for a couple of years, and then okay. Eastern Orthodox Seminary, and so on. I'm kind of non-ecclesiastical right now, but I'm not. I'm not opposed to uh, traditional religion or anything like that. I'm just kind of a hermit doing my own thing. Well, I got to tell you, this this book, Giza Death Star, 
was a fun read. Now, I didn't read the whole thing, but I read enough of it to really enjoy the chapters and, and, and the content. What what was it? Was it was it uh, Sitchin's book? Was it Chris Dunn's book that triggered your interest in in wanting to write a book uh, uh, based on what you discovered? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Chris Dunn's book and Zechariah Sitchin. There was kind of a third interest. My father was an engineer, and my he and my mom used to play cards every Friday night with um, the local television engineer. So, you know, we had engineers at at the card table talking about things. And I remember vividly one time when I was a young boy, the two of them talking about the Great Pyramid and (laughs) how it was a fantastically engineered structure. So I had kind of a personal interest uh, due to my father's background as an engineer, but I really got interested in this idea of the weapons hypothesis, and I'm glad you zeroed in on on Chris Dunn and Zechariah Sitchin, Mm -hmm. because Chris Dunn's book is really, if you haven't read it, it's called The Giza Power Plant. It's really an eye-opener, because he approaches the structure not from the standpoint of uh, of an Egyptologist. He approaches it with an engineer's eye Mm -hmm. and comes to the conclusion that this thing had to have been a machine of some sort, and he outlines his reasons for doing so in that book. And Sitchin, on the other hand, wrote a book called Wars of Gods and Men. Now, please understand, I'm not a Sitchinite. I I don't subscribe to his overarching scenario or a lot of things, but one of the things in that book that really grabbed my attention was he makes it very clear that wars were fought over control of the pyramids and that the pyramid, the Great Pyramid itself, may have been some kind of weapon, but then he just sort of drops that. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. go he doesn't go anywhere with it. He just, you know, kind of mentions it in passing and on we go. And I thought, gee whiz, what a significant thing to say, particularly in the light of Chris Dunn's book about it being a machine. So the impetus for the book really kind of came out of those three things. I wanted to see if, in fact, one could argue kind of a highly speculative, and please please understand, folks, that I really do view my hypothesis here as a highly speculative, very radical hypothesis. But uh, what, what would happen if you combined the two insights of Chris Dunn and, and Sitchin's passing reference? So what I attempted to do in that book, it's actually the first of three books, is kind of reverse engineer uh, a case for for why it may have been some sort of weapon. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I want to start with in this book is you present the reader with your hypothesis for the level of intelligence that would have been able to create this. Uh-huh. And what I really like about your speculation is you come up with civilizations type and uh, civilization types. Uh-huh. You bring up uh, Mikio uh, uh, Kaku's classifications, uh-huh. and, and his classifications are, are three classifications of sophisticated civilizations. The type one is a civilization that controls the resources of an entire planet. Type uh-huh. two is a civilization which controls the resources of a star. And type three controls the resources of an entire 
galaxy. Mm-hmm. And you speculate whoever built the Great Pyramid was either a Type Two or a Type Three civilization. Now tell mm-hmm. us why you believe that is the case. Well, Dr. Kaku is referring there to the Kardashev classification system. Uh, Nikolai Kardashev was a very famous Russian astronomer and astrophysicist, very well-known, internationally respected man. And those were his classifications for the types of civilization that he thought would exist dependent upon their energy requirements. In other words, type one, as you say, requires the energy resources of of a planet, type two of a star, type three of a galaxy. Mm -hmm. What intrigued me when looking at the pyramid, and this is is where I kind of uh, take off from from Chris Dunn, Um, if you look at the structure itself, embedded within it are dimensional analogs of various things in local celestial space. It has dimensional analogs of planet Earth. It has dimensional analogs of the solar system, of the sun, and even there are even some galactic analogs in the structure. So I got to thinking, well, why would you, why would you build all of that into a structure, particularly if you're just burying a pharaoh? Well, the answer is you're going to a lot of trouble for absolutely nothing to do, to do that. Yeah. So we then look at Chris Dunn's hypothesis that this had to have been a power plant of some sort, although he doesn't speculate beyond uh, kind of a vague reference, I think, to um, Nikola Tesla. Uh, and I think he's on to something there, as a matter of fact. But in looking at those dimensional analogs, I, I had to pose the question, well, what are they really trying to do when they're doing this? And the answer came from this basic elementary physics that what they're really trying to do is build a, what's called a coupled harmonic oscillator. In other words, this structure is designed to oscillate and manipulate the energy of those systems, planet Earth, the Sun, and to a certain extent, the Milky Way galaxy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the that's kind of the Cliff Notes version, if right. I can right. if I can put it that way, of of the basic core hypothesis behind the book. Right. Now, in Chris Dunn's book, uh, mm-hmm. and I've read it and had Chris on, and I know Chris well. Mm-hmm. He shows the level of precision, and the word precision is listed throughout his book. In fact, he even Mm -hmm. comments on the word precision. And the tolerances of the inner chambers, of the way the stones are cut, the type Mm -hmm. of stone, are such that in his estimation, uh, a form of combustion was Mm -hmm. created. Uh, I can't remember if it was the king's chamber or the queen's chamber that was the uh, area of combustion. But is it your belief that because these tolerances were so precise, were so uh, out of this world for, for, for such a, uh, well, it's considered to have been created during the dynastic period, um, mm-hmm. does this immediately push it away from the dynastic period and uh, present itself uh, f- uh, to an unknown, uh, as you call it, paleo-advanced um, mm-hmm. civilization? Is that what you say? Well, I, I, there's actually two questions there. I think that the the absolutely high 
precision tolerances in the structure, which he's noted in his work. Uh, you can go all the way back to Sir Flanders Petri, right. uh, the so-called uh, father of modern Egyptology, who noted many of the very same things that, that Mr. Dunn notes. And you're dealing there with a degree of precision that's really optical. So in other words, in Dunn's hypothesis, you have, actually have the optical cavity for a maser. Uh, he thinks that, that it, it was capable of producing a microwave maser effect, given the high tolerances in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you really study what he's saying, he's also suggesting very strongly that, that the microwaves were modulated. In other words, information was modulated into the microwaves uh, by various electroacoustic processes. So if you, if you think of it that way, that's yet another argument that this is not only a machine, it's a very, very sophisticated one uh, that's the product of people that had some very sophisticated physics knowledge, which leads to the second part, I think, of what you're getting at. And that is, if you posit that this was a dynastic creation, then you have to assume that they either have this knowledge themselves or they inherit it from somewhere else. And if you look at Egyptian texts themselves, they're very clear that they're kind of a legacy civilization of something that preceded it. Mm -hmm. And that would that in my mind and the way I handle in the second and third books the, the dating of the pyramid is yes, I push it back to a pre-dynastic era that I leave kind of open-ended as to the um, terminus antiquem for it being built. I don't think it's a fourth, a fourth dynasty structure. I, I don't think it was um, built by, by Khufu. I think Alan Alford's hypothesis here is probably correct, that this was a, a plateau that, that the Egyptians adopted as their own rather than created as their own. Mm. Fascinating. If you could give us an approximation of what you feel is a time period uh -huh. when the this pyramid uh, was built, what would you say? Well, there's a very interesting clue in Herodotus. And, of course, you have to kind of take Herodotus with a grain of salt sometimes. But he records that, of course, in his day, the casing stones were still on the Great Pyramid. And he says two very interesting things. First of all, that it was inscribed with all sorts of writing or hieroglyphic all on, on the four faces of, of the pyramid. But he also states that you could see when you were up close to the pyramid, you could see a water line about halfway up the pyramid which in most people's thinking would would place the pyramid prior to the Great Flood. And if you follow the people that have been trying to date that in, in the alternative research community, they usually date it between 10 and 12,000 <coughs> years B.C. Mm -hmm. So that would place the pyramid, if that's correct, again, you know, kind of taking Herodotus uh, at his word here always kind of risky, but if you take him at his word, then that would make the Great Pyramid older than, than 10 to 12,000 BC. So in other words, it's a very, very old structure. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a tall drink of water for people to wrap their minds around. But I think Alford 
makes the case in his book, um, The Phoenix Solution, uh, an excellent book, uh, for there being three levels of construction that are evident at the Giza Plateau. And he specifically singles out the Great Pyramid as being the oldest level because it has the most perfect uh, structural components in it. And then you see a gradual decline to the second layer of construction, which would involve the Sphinx, the Second Pyramid, uh, and the Pyramid of Menkari there. And his reference to the Sphinx is very interesting because he does accept the dating of uh, Dr. Robert Schock mm -hmm. that dates the Pyramid, or pardon me, the Sphinx, to the subpluvial period in Egypt, which would be about eight to 8,500 years B.C., so again, that would date the Great Pyramid to a much older period. So yeah, there's a number of uh, there's a number of aspects that kind of coordinate the dating here. It's a contextual argument for for the Great Pyramid being very old. Mm -hmm. uh, the civilization that created the Great Pyramid is there, to your knowledge, uh, any other? Construction similar. I was going to think of. Uh, I was thinking of the Osirian. Yes. Massive blocks would have mm -hmm. been maybe around the same period. No mortar. Complete monstrous monoliths cut in mm -hmm. precision and placed without. And we have no knowledge how that structure works. What would you right. say? Well, I would agree with you, um, and I think uh, Mr. Dunn's done some examination of the Osirian himself and noted, the again, the extremely precise tolerances in those things. Uh, and again, I think he's demonstrated that these things were at least sonic cavities, if not optical cavities. So somebody back when had some very, very precision engineering skills. Uh, there's, there's no two ways about this. And it's very difficult to envision, even with... Uh, Sir Flinders Petrie, who, who pointed out that the Egyptians had um, diamond-tipped, hard-cutting tools, but that presupposes that they would have been able to use those, those cutting tools with the extremely high rotation speeds and, and sawing speeds necessary to, to cut those things with precision. And again, that begs quite a few questions. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I would agree with you. I think the Osirian is probably is probably from that same period where you see somebody in megalithic times with some extraordinarily advanced engineering skills. Now, have you had a chance to to see the pyramid up close and personal? Jo no. Jo no. Yeah. No. I'm hoping to get out there in the next year or two. <laughs> uh, um, so. In your book, you, you, you make great reference to the type of weapon it was. Mm -hmm. um, and if, you're, if I'm not mistaken, you don't really show how it was directed, how the beam or how, how the, the power of this weapon was, mm -hmm. was, uh, uh, was, sh was sent. And, but you do refer to the Hindu epics or the verses uh, that contain references and descriptions of of explosions that resemble re resemble uh, nuclear uh, detonations, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which you consider is 
uh, made up from a very sophisticated physics, uh, paleophysics, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the the weapon itself, you describe as, um, or you theorize, is a combination of nuclear, electromagnetic, acoustic, and gravitational energy together. Mm-hmm. What what would that look like? What would, would it look like? A, 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 I mean, think about it for a minute. Give, give our listeners a chance to, to, to see from your language what that would look like. Well, what it would look like, first of all, is you're dealing with somebody that would have a profoundly unified physics. In other words, all those types of energies are subsets of, of an all-encompassing type of energy. Call it the zero-point energy or the vacuum flux, whatever you want to call it. So when I, when I get asked this question quite a lot, and I'm glad you asked it, um, how would you direct it? And here's the problem. This is not a weapon that you point and aim like a gun or a laser beam or uh, a particle beam or anything like that because it's a resonating weapon. So in other words, think of the pyramid as a big piano keyboard and all of the systems that it is oscillating, all those dimensional analogs function as oscillators to those various systems. So in other words, it's just like on a piano, on an acoustic piano, if you press a note down silently and then press the same note an octave above or below, the silent note that you're pressing down that you haven't struck is going to be heard vibrating sympathetically with the note you strike. So you can actually kind of target, so to speak, uh, a, a particular system that you want to oscillate or load energy into using that harmonic oscillator effect. And that's what I think. That's what I think it was. So it's not a point and aim weapon. It's it's a press this key or press that key or any combination of keys, and you're going to oscillate a particular system. That's why you have all those um, those dimensional analogs inside that structure. This is what I think it was for. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit uh, later about the effects of this. Uh, I'm just going to call it a weapons, uh, uh, a beam, a beam weapon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the idea of those combined um, physics into a central machine or weapon is terrifying. And I can see why uh, you describe uh, the possibility of, of them decommissioning, or lack of a better word, uh, uh, t- t- turning the thing off so it's never used again <laughs> because <laughs> it's so it's such a, a terrifying uh, a terrifying um, uh, weapon. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit, uh, and, and in a minute here we're going to go into the, what Sitchin has to say about the, the the war between men and gods and his his references, but. Uh, talk about the Libyan desert glass for a minute. And, and this is what's so, for those of you listening, this is really, really what makes uh, Joe's book, The Giza Death Star, uh, a great possibility, is evidence of these fused uh, mm-hmm. uh, sand crystals 
fused into glass. Talk a little bit about that, would you? Well, yeah, the Libyan desert glass is a, an area of the desert in southeastern Libya and southwestern Egypt. It's kind of it kind of crosses the border of the two modern countries, but it's an area where you find the the glass the the desert sand has been fused into glass just like you you have or find at the Trinity uh, test site in New Mexico when they detonated America's first atomic bomb. Um, this area is is rather widespread, and it indicates that there was quite a degree of heat or something that fused the the desert in that fashion. Uh, there's a famous uh, ruin in India called Mohenjo-Daro that also looks like it suffered tremendous heat uh, and very sudden heat uh, in an ancient complex. Um, so somebody had some sophisticated weaponry way back when and was was apparently using it. Uh, that's, that's Sitchin's take. That would certainly be my take. There are certainly other explanations for it. Mm-hmm. The, the conventional explanation, though, is that this is, uh, was caused by, by a meteorite or a bolide. And the problem there is, of course, bolides don't normally explode that low to the ground to create enough heat to fuse desert glass. And if they impact to the ground, then you get a crater, and none of that's evident. So in other words, you, you have the telltale signs of some sort of airburst weapon, uh, possibly nuclear in nature. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, you refer to Sitchin uh, quite a bit in the book, and I, I can see why you do that, because he, uh, for all his um, failures in some of the uh, descriptions of, of the ancient past, I think there's a lot of that's come since his death that, a lot of his transcriptions are not actu- as accurate as he had hoped. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he does mention, and you talk about this in, in your chapter two, that uh, in his estimation, the uh, ancient war of the, uh, the Rama Empire and the Osirian uh, society in North Africa um, to destroy the great weapon, which is the Great Pyramid, uh, and then th- perhaps them turning it on and wiping out <laughs> those <laughs> those people is pretty shocking. Now, uh, talk a little bit about the cities that are north of Bombay where they have vitrified skeletons. And I yeah. think to this day, even though this is a, a war that may have happened 12, 13, 20,000 years ago, there's still evidence of high radiation in some of these places, isn't there? Yeah, that that place is Mohenjo Daro that I mentioned previously. Oh, it is that, that one. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. that is that is that vitrified city where you see the skeletons of of people in the street, you know, that were caught in sudden in some sudden conflagration, mm-hmm. and it is radioactive. Um, it's a very very strange, bizarre sight. Uh, and Sitchin mentions this in his book as as being part of of, of this war, as you point out. Um, I think that, you know, the baffling thing for me, Cliff, was was in reading Sitchin and his in-passing reference to the Great Pyramid as being a weapon. He doesn't stop really to consider what he's just said and the significance of it. 
Um, and, and to me, that's kind of where I, I start the book is, is, okay, if that's the case, then what, what might it look like? So let's get back to this idea of gravity and, and electromagnetism and so on. What, what type of, of beam are we really talking about? And the closest analog I can, can come up with for people is to think of, of the beam, if you will, that it puts out the, as a local oscill- oscillation in space-time. In other words, it's a, an area of compaction and rarefaction. It's a longitudinal wave rather than a Hertz wave in local space-time. And that's very powerful. Um, if, you, if you can admit for the moment that if you have a technology that's capable of manipulating the fabric of space-time... Okay. then you have the potential, if you weaponize that, you have the potential for something that would make a hydrogen bomb look like a firecracker. Uh, it would be enormously powerful if you were able to pull that off. And th- that's really kind of what I, I suggest in the book. Exactly. And that gets to my next question. And mm-hmm. I'm going to read uh, just a section uh, real quickly of what you describe uh, is the makeup of the machine. You say the pyramid is constructed as an analog of terrestrial and solar physics as well as galactic physics. What does that uh-huh. mean? What, is, what, what does that combination mean? What do you theorize? Well, it, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of what I call the, the feral corollaries to, to the Kardashev classification, that type 1, 2, and 3 uh, civilization that we mentioned earlier. Now, Kardashev has in his system, in his classification system, the idea that these civilizations would be distinguished by their energy requirements. So in other words, type one requires the energy of an entire planet to sustain itself, type two, a star, type three, a galaxy. But what I'm suggesting is a corollary that a type one, two, or three civilization really doesn't require the energy of those systems, but rather the ability to engineer them and manipulate systems on that scale. So in other words, if there are dimensional analogs in in the Great Pyramid of systems of a planetary scale or of the stellar scale or even of the galactic scale, then you're dealing with the possibility that they're trying to engineer systems on those scales through that coupled uh, oscillator effect. And that is, again, you know, kind of the central core of, of my thinking as to why it might have been a weapon. Okay. Do we, do, do we know or do we have any idea of any other locations where this weapon was... Uh uh, turned on and uh, uh, send, s- sending uh, energy beams to other than uh, this Indian war? Is there any place else that has evidence of something like this? Well, the, <laughs> that's where it gets interesting because um, I wrote I wrote another book further on in the series of books that I wrote called The Cosmic War, Interplanetary, Phys- Interplanetary Physics, pardon me, Modern Physics, Interplanetary Warfare in Ancient Texts. That's the title of the book. And in that book, I examine the thesis, basically, of Dr. Tom Van Flander in the old Naval Observatory. Oh, yeah, sure. 
And his thesis is that the asteroid belt, he picks up an, an idea that actually was uh, current with late 18th and early 19th century astronomy when the asteroid belt was just being discovered. And astronomers back then theorized that this is the remains of a planet that blew up. And, you know, if you read Dr. Van Flandern's book about this hypothesis, it's very interesting because he tries to propose various mechanisms that would cause a planet suddenly to explode. Uh, one of them, he, he posits that there's some sort of nuclear reaction in the core of the planet. Uh, and then he he kind of backs off of that because he realizes that it would have to be an extremely powerful reaction to blow up a planet. And it would have to be under some conditions of instability. And he doesn't really explain how that instability would arise. Then he comes to the idea that well, maybe a bunch of antimatter and matter were separated in the planetary core by some mechanism unknown to us, and then they came into contact with each other and the planet blew up. And again, he backs off of that. And then finally in his book, you, you see him posit something that you can tell he doesn't want to talk about very much. He says, well, there's a third possibility, and that is the planet blew up by some deliberate action. Those are, those are his words. <laughs> and, you know, what he's really saying is somebody blew the planet up. <laughs> Once you've said that, you said, well, there's a technology to do it and, and a physics to do it, and it's been weaponized. So um, I think, yes, I think if you're talking about a society or civilization that had a sufficient physics to engineer all these dimensional analogs and had basically the technology to, to weaponize space-time, if you will, then, yeah, it's possible that it would have been used at a scale that we can scarcely conceive of, and hence I called it the Giza Death Star, you know, taking the cue from George Lucas. Right. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you you talk a lot about um, the, the engineering, the schematics behind this machine, mm -hmm. and it being uh, encoded in secret language that has been handed down and may even be used or known about in certain uh, secret societies. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was really interested in your description of the, uh, uh, the Veracoca uh, carving in Bolivia, the famous sun gate, <laughs> yeah. and how you uh, felt that the uh, surrounding um, symbology was, the, in your mind, the evidence of circuitry. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that encoded schematic and, and maybe uh, uh, it, it being evidence of what you call the paleo uh, science? Well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean it to be taken as evidence. What I meant that chapter to do was, was for, to get people to think analogically, to, to look behind what they were seeing. Uh, I, I put up in that book a, a bunch of occult sigils, they're called with you know so-called occult writing but if you look at these things they they have all of the hallmarks of or feel to them in a qualitative sense of, of circuit diagrams 
And in some cases, they're rather uncanny to, uh, resemblance to, to modern uh, electronic circuit diagrams. The Viracocha thing is a real, to me, that's always been an eye-opener because what I did in the book was, was to point out that that famous picture of the sun god uh, at um, Machu Picchu, uh, no, not Machu Picchu, uh, Lake Titicaca, I'm sorry. Titicaca, right. Yeah. If you look at that, that stylized rendering of Viracocha, who's the sun god, incidentally, let us, let us note that. Turn it upside down and it looks like a bomb. <laughs> okay. Mm. And if you, if you look at the, the actual schematic, it looks like a kind of a highly stylized diagram of a, a three-stage fission fusion fission hydrogen bomb. Uh, it, it's almost uncanny once you once you kind of strip away the the metaphysical religious approach to it and just kind of look at it with an engineer's eye. You know, you see the bomb fins, you see the uh, you see a fissionable core, and so on and so forth. So it's a really interesting to me. It's an interesting diagram um, that suggests or hints that again somebody way back when had some pretty sophisticated physics knowledge. We're going to take a short commercial break, and we will return with my guest today, Joseph Farrell, speaking on his book, The Giza. Death Star. We'll be right back. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're listening to a 2017 recording with author Joseph Farrow speaking on his book, The Giza Death Star and the Wars for Earth Thousands of Years Ago. Is there, is there uh, another example you can give of um, placing in plain sight evidence of uh, <laughs> uh, high-level physics and science? Well, as a matter of fact, yeah, I wrote a subsequent book many years later called The Grid of the Gods, um, in which I, I expose people to something very interesting. The, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, uh, apparently had a type of mathematical notation that strongly resembles what we call Schlafly numbers. Uh, Schlafly was a 19th century German mathematician. 
that's basically credited for inventing the mathematical technique, along with a couple of other people in Germany, for higher dimensional mathematical analysis. In other words, how do you mathematically describe uh, a plain ordinary tetrahedron in more than three spatial dimensions? This is what they were up to. Uh, and you find this this very weird notation in Babylon that, that suggests that something like that may have been in play way back when. Well, long story short here, if you're going to have a machine that engineers all types of energy, and if you're going to have a machine that's a resonator to various systematic structures in local space-time, like the planet, like the sun, like the galaxy, and so on, then you're going to have to have a, a kind of higher dimensional mathematical analysis to be able to do it. And there are little suggestions that uh, somebody way back when may have had precisely that. So again, what I'm, what I'm doing in the book is assembling not so much uh, arguments for each and every detail, but I'm, I'm assembling kind of a gestalt, you know, look at this, look at that. Yeah. And when you put it all together, you're getting a very interesting picture. Right. Um, Dunn passes through and does a pretty good analysis of the interior chambers of the Great Cheops Pyramid. Right. And he... Uh, continually refers to the level of precision, and and I've already talked a little bit about these different types of granites, crystallized granites, and mm-hmm. um, uh, he believes, and you touch on this, that there's missing elements to the <laughs> to the interior. I mean, there's the there's the gateway, there's the entrance way that has strange. Uh, holes in the in the area that looks like mm-hmm. there was something that were in there, and he speculates there may have been resonators or something. Uh-huh. But do you, if you were to to to, uh, to to pin it down, what would you say are the missing components that are making up this machine? The, the main components. Well, one of the most fascinating bits of analysis in Dunn's work is his analysis of the Grand Gallery, this long, narrow, tall, uh, very, very long uh, chamber that leads up to the King's Chamber in the pyramid. Along each side of the Grand Gallery, which is, if you if you look at it, it's designed as an acoustic amplification chamber. There are these slots that are regularly placed along each side of the Grand Gallery, 27 uh, pairs of these slots in all. And he hypothesizes that there had to have been something in those slots. And what he thinks they were, were what are called Helmholtz resonators. These are big sort of globes, hollow globes with a hole uh, cut into them kind of like uh, the aperture on a flute. You blow over the aperture and you, you create turbulence in the resonating body of the flute and it produces a musical note. So he thinks there were banks of these Helmholtz resonators inside the Grand Gallery to modulate acoustic uh, sound, tones, musical tones. Hmm. And I go a step further. I think he's dead on there because, believe it or not, 
Sitchin says the same thing, simply based not only on looking at the pyramid, but based upon looking at some ancient texts. And he thinks that, again, the Grand Gallery had pieces inside of it that were subsequently taken out or removed as a result of this war. They wanted to render this machine inoperable, so they removed the functioning parts. And in Sitchin's case, he thinks these things might have been crystals of some sort. So I kind of combined Dunn's idea of a Helmholtz resonator and Sitchin's idea of a crystal to come up with uh, something I, I called phi crystals in, in that book. Uh, crystals that were designed to to modulate information of an acoustic and of an electromagnetic nature because, of course, crystals are piezoelectric in nature. When you place them under stress, they give off an, a little electrical charge. So I think something like that may have been inside there. Hmm. Is there uh, evidence uh, or do you hypothesize that the neighboring pyramids uh, had something to do with the function of the main pyramid or uh, I think I think the the smaller ones were were built later, but mm -hmm. it, it, was there any surrounding mechanisms that uh, we can identify today that were part of the main weapon? Well, that's a very good question, and I actually I don't address that in that first book, but I do get into it in the second book in that um, Giza Death Star trilogy. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if you look at the plan of the Giza compound, it's very clear that it was laid out by some sort of predetermined arrangement. In other words, these things and structures were not just placed there randomly, even though it took several uh, centuries for the whole compound to be built and completed. If you look at the second pyramid there, the second big one, there is a minute little twist in the pyramid at the top. And most people think that this is a result of the decline in the building standards. I disagree. I think that twist is deliberate because the pyramids function as waveguides. Hmm. So you're putting a little rotation with that twist into whatever wave you're guiding with that pyramid. So again, some pretty sophisticated physics going on. Now, interestingly enough, if you place an axis of rotation through the Great Pyramid and then rotate all of the other structures from above through, uh, uh, through 90 degrees and then through 180 and then to 70 degrees and then overlay the results as you're rotating the whole complex, what you end up with is a very interesting structure. You end up with the Star of David, the Mogan David. And that's interesting because that's the structure you get if you ortho-rotate two embedded tetrahedra inside each other. So it's very, very interesting that even the compound itself appears to be laid out according to some geometrical design. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would, I would think that there's some functional purpose uh, to the other structures there, although like like done, I don't get into them in any great detail. Uh, I kind of, I kind of uh, go much deeper in, in that uh, book way down the line in the series called Grid of the Gods. Mm. 
fascinating. I want to go back to the uh, people, the, the, the humanoids, if they were, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and your speculation. And, and the speculation that you have is based on the level of uh, evolution, type mm-hmm. 2 or type 3. In your description of someone who is from a type 2 or type 3 civilization, uh, you describe them as very long-lived, perhaps many hundreds, if not thousands of years old, mm-hmm. and their technology evolving uh, uh, exponentially. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> do, do you, I mean, you, you actually hint at the fact that as you're, say, a century years old, you're, uh, you're, you're eight, five, six, seven, a thousand years old, mm-hmm. that your, your personality may not develop in the same manner that your physicality or your physiology <laughs> develops, mm-hmm. and you become a little too sensitive, and if somebody might say something to you, and you might go off the, <laughs> the handle. Go off the handle, right. <laughs> and is it your contention that whoever built these were warlike people who just wanted to say, you know, I'm going to kick your ass for calling me a, an MF or something, and we're going to unload on you, and here's the weapon we're going to use. Uh, I'm just curious, because if this was a weapon... And these brilliant people built it. Maybe our perception of of great intelligence is is wrong. That you don't become a peacekeeper. That you don't. Um, I mean, we watch too much fantasy. Star Trek. You know, the brilliant mind right. uh, is a, is a is a quiet and, and humble individual. What, what do you think these people were? What 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 made them create such a horrible horrible weapon? Well. <sighs> You know, intelligence doesn't all great intelligence doesn't always equal moral rectitude. Uh, You can look at human history for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You can you can look at human mythology for that. You know, for crying out loud, you've got in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you've got Lucifer. You know, an an archangel, actually a cherub. You know, super intelligent, uh, bodiless power, as as some of the patristics literature refers to him. Uh, but nonetheless very twisted, very evil. So, you know, we have to get over this idea that great intelligence uh, from E.T. or whoever is automatically going to make them our space brother. But the real, the real thing that I wanted to bring out with, with that particular bit of speculation toward the end of that book was that if you look at the king's list, the Sumerian king's list, or even the Egyptian king's lists, they're describing essentially three phases of the evolution of of modern man. And by that, I mean not just biologically, but also in terms of uh, moral uh, component. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with three layers. You've got a, a layer of god kings in the mists of prehistory. Then you've got demigods who are kind of half god, half human, and then you've got humans. But in both cases, you're dealing with lifespans that are so long and astronomical that scholars have tended to dismiss these kings lists as pure fantasy. But in point of fact, if you can envision now 
you or me or your friends living, let's say, a thousand years old, that would mean that you would not have to recycle all of human knowledge every generation, every 20 years or so, and hand it down to the next generation. You literally would have an individual who would be capable of learning not just one specialty, but several, and being able to think, you know, at, at a Nobel Prize winning level in each. So you would have, with long lifespan, you would have conceivably the ability to to make modern human progress in the sciences look like kindergarten. But by the same token, you would be amplifying, I think, an individual's predisposition to either a moral and virtuous character or to an evil character. And, you know, imagine imagine an Adolf Hitler or a Joseph Stalin having a thousand years to do what they did or on the flip side, imagine an Albert Schweitzer or a Mother Teresa having that long to do what they did. So, right, yeah. uh, you know, the moral character doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with the intelligence. Um, so it's very possible that a society like that would blow itself apart. I know, but it's just like with this uh, brilliant evolution uh, and thousands upon thousands of years of uh, Development, research and development, and and trial and error. You would think that that they would come to a point where, you know, fighting doesn't make sense anymore. You know, why bother? We have more intellectual pursuits, mm -hmm. and yet here they, here's this amazing weapon that is devastating. It's a mm -hmm. it's a almost like a planet killer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is in point of fact, and, and I have to tell you, when that book first came out, I, I caught flack like you would not believe from a certain <laughs> segment in, in this alternative research community. I call it the Jonquils and Daisies segment that, oh. that wants, you know, that wants to believe that, that great intelligence equals great morality. Yeah. And I point out to them, you know, the texts themselves, be they Greek wars of the gods or Sumerian wars of the gods or Vedic wars of the gods, yeah. that you're dealing with you're dealing with the same old, same old. You're dealing with people that are morally conflicted that have their hands on some pretty sophisticated technology. Yeah. And it should not come as a surprise to us because Scientists now, uh, Dr. Kaku, uh, Carl Sagan, um, scientists like that have, have been saying over and over that, you know, if we don't blow ourselves up, yeah, then the, then the sky's the limit. Um, so they're alive to this, to this possibility. So it, it never made sense to me as, well, if that's the case, then why do we need to believe that this ancient high civilization wouldn't be subject to the same foibles. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, in the last couple of minutes, I, I want to conclude with something that I found just really fun to read in your book. And that is the fact that uh, this civilization may not have started uh, from Earth, may not have come mm -hmm. here uh, originally. And the evidence that Richard Hoagland presents, as well as Dr. John Brandenburg, who we've had on the show a number of times, right. and other researchers, uh, Mark Collado, 
uh, right. who identified pyramids on Mars. That it's a it's it's a great possibility. In fact, I believe it is a possibility that a very old civilization on Mars came and uh, uh, supported uh, the development of Earth. Um, uh, I mean, uh, Brandenburg believes that the the pyramids, the face on Mars, is perhaps a million years old. Mm-hmm. Um, others believe it's closer to fifty thousand to sixty thousand, m- many, many, many thousands of years ago. But uh, I-, I wanted to ask you, uh, what what was the compelling idea to to connect Mars? I mean, my idea is the obvious, which is. We've seen pyramids. We haven't gotten really close up to them. But right. but you actually describe in a, in a line or two the evidence that Hoagland found of another sphinx, sphinx structure mm-hmm. on the planet Mars. So talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what you believe. Well, I, I do think that, that there is some connection very clearly between whatever was on Mars, and I do think that there was some sort of civilization up there eons ago, and what's down here. Um, the most compelling for me uh, is the name Cairo itself, because Cairo, El Cairo in Arabic, is what? It's Mars. Hmm. <laughs> That's the name of the city, Mars. <laughs> okay. And right next to it, of course, you've got the Giza Plateau. But I do think that there is, when you put the textual data together with the arguments that certain people, Mr. Hoagland, Dr. Carlotto, Dr. Brandenburg, uh, I know all of them except Dr. Carlotto. Um, when you put the, when you put it all together, it's really resembling what the text state because if you look at the texts which i do uh, a certain amount of in in the third pyramid book giza death star de- uh, destroyed um when you put it all together it looks like the gods were fighting some sort of civil war and let's remember something very important very often in those ancient texts the names of the gods are also the names for the planets Hmm. So in other words, by telling you there's a war of the gods, what they're telling you is there's a war of the planets. <laughs> so, right. so yeah, it may have been some sort of civil war and you know the Earth and, and Mars were connected and, and uh, Mars was destroyed. I, I tend to believe Dr. Van Plandern's date that uh, this may have happened about 3.2 million years ago. So in other words, very, very old. Um, so yeah, the dating the dating of all this gets to be a problem, of course. Yeah. So I, I I paint in very broad strokes and kind of leave all that open ended. <laughs> well, that's okay. Hey, I love the book. <laughs> the book's amazing, and the other books sound like they're equally as, as fascinating. Um, so you you bring up a good point, and that is that uh, these super intelligent off world beings came to Earth. Uh, as a uh, uh, another place to perhaps, as Sitchin describes, access the natural resources, uh, perhaps create uh, genetic versions of themselves to enslave and, and go into the mines. Um, and so they would be gods because, and you talk a little bit about this, because their technology is so advanced, uh, 
mm-hmm. that we would consider them gods. You know, they could mm-hmm. you know maybe appear and disappear. Their ships were beam ships, mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. But uh, in the final analysis, do you actually believe that the Giza pyramid was a form of a weapon of some type? I mean, oh yes, you you do. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Is there evidence of this? I mean, because if we look at Brandenburg. Uh, he strongly believes, and he actually uh, shows great evidence, which is now being validated, that two uh, empire state size nuclear uh, bombs were detonated over uh, just south of Sidonia, which basically destroyed the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are warring people, and he speculates that the people who blew the bomb uh, were a very high form of civilization and that the people who built the, maybe not necessarily Sidonia, but some of the other pyramids were, in his estimation, Stone Age people. So there's a little conflict of the mm-hmm. story there. But uh, So you're firm, you're firm with this being a, uh, uh, a machine. Yeah, um, I am. Radical as the hypothesis sounds and crazy as it sounds. Yeah, um, there's really no other way in my mind to to, to rationalize the structure. Um, you've got too many things in it that indicate that if it is a machine, it's a machine of a very unusual sort. And again, the only conclusion I can come to is that it's for the purpose of weaponizing space-time, mm-hmm. which is interesting because if you can do that, you can you can create the effects of big nuclear blasts without the nuclear blast. Okay. Yeah. So this this is where I would part company with Dr. Brandenburg. I don't think you need a gigantic hydrogen bomb to <laughs> you know, to create some of the things that you see on Mars. But again, that's a more much more speculative thesis than is his. Um, yeah. So, you know, you have to leave that question open-ended and, and up in the air. Okay. So, uh, you've written how many versions? Let's see. It's uh, uh, Giza Death Star, and then how many uh, follow-ups? Were two more? Uh, there's two more in that series. Uh, when I started these books, I laid out the series of books in a very deliberate order and a very deliberate plan. So it may seem haphazard. Anybody who's read my books will tell you that they're all related to each other. Okay. Uh, there's the Giza Death Star, and then the second one was the Giza Death Star Deployed, which is where I really drill down into the details of my argument and um, its resemblance to some other things that have happened on the fringes of, of science in, in modern times. Okay. And then the third book is The Giza Death Star Destroyed, which is where I actually start examining the texts in for this war in the light of that hypothesis. There's a couple more books that touch on it. As I said, Grid of the Gods, which occurs much later in my series of books. Uh, and then The Cosmic War, which is another very important book. Okay. If you were to sum it up, uh, and we're talking only of the Giza Death Star, I'm going to call mm-hmm. it a series, mm-hmm. what would you like to leave with the reader? What, what, what is the, 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 the idea that you would want to uh, have the reader take away? Well, the biggest idea that I would have the reader take away is is be very skeptical of Egyptology. <laughs> oh, God, that's like a no-brainer. 
That's a no-brainer. I mean, uh, Robert Schock the other day, I was reading his uh, early paper from uh, right after the uh, Mystery of the Sphinx series, a TV documentary came out, and he was hammered right. by uh, Lerner and Hawass. He basically <laughs> feels that it's not even a science. No, it isn't. It isn't. It, you know, and why it, joke, why yeah. it ever got the label of a science, I don't know, because uh, it, there's so many things about it that are just uh to me laughable yeah. um <laughs> i know i mean i you're laughing now and i laugh too but it's sad because they're the ones who determine the history even in the face of tremendous uh, uh analysis and evidence to the counter right right it it, it really is uh i you know to to first hearing the idea that it's a weapon of some sort mm-hmm sounds ludicrous and bizarre and radical and so on and so forth but as i said when you look at when you look at the gestalt of what you're dealing with with that one structure alone not to mention all of the other structures around it you're dealing with something that to me has all the appearance of having been the creation of some very very advanced civilization very long ago hmm. Okay. And so the 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 theme is uh an ancient past that people should be aware of and that maybe our historians have man's evolution kind of askewed based on <laughs> uh, uh uh very uh weak evidence. Is that right. is that a good uh, estimation? Well, no, they're dealing with the same data set that we are. But the template, you know, the spectacles that they're they're looking at that data set with uh, are different. And in my opinion, you know, you're you're dealing with spectacles in that instance that are not even prescription. (laughs) They distort what they're seeing. Uh, And, of course, they would say the same thing about about this. But um, I think when you add it all up that you've got to acknowledge the one basic fundamental thing that that Egyptology does not want to acknowledge, and that is that the Egyptians themselves indicate that they're a legacy civilization. They're not the start of civilization. In other words, they acknowledge that they are declined in terms of their civilizational prowess from something that preceded them. Which was much more advanced. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it's high time, in other words, that we take, if we're going to take the text seriously, we have to take those texts seriously, too. Yeah. I see a lot of problems with text. Let me ask you one last question. There's newer technology that seems to be able to see telluric fields, energetic fields. There is a a gentleman named John Burke a few years ago, he passed away, who was able to analyze Mayan pyramid complexes. In in, in specific, uh, he analyzed the World Pyramid in Tikal and discovered that the Maya had built their pyramids over uh, geomagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. And as these fields bubble up and and grow and pass uh, into the atmosphere, somehow the Maya were able to capture it and increase the energetics within that field, he called it telluric field, and then as they pass up and out of the uh, pyramid, they were very, very strong, equal to 
uh, what we would have in currents of electricity that we have in our household. Mm-hmm. Um, as as our technology gets better and we can begin scanning and and detecting these fields, that should open a door to understanding some of these ancient cultures that were very sophisticated, or as you call them, you know, type two, type three civilizations that maybe utilized geomagnetic fields, natural geomagnetic fields, great, greatly amplified. What, what do you say to that? Well, if you're, if you're talking about a civilization that has a technology that can tap into or engineer the fabric of space-time locally on the laboratory bench, so to speak, then telluric currents are going to be a subset of whatever it is that they're manipulating. So I have no difficulty with that whatsoever. That's that's basically the core of my argument, um, that these structures are not... Uh, they're not built by happenstance. They're not placed where they are on the surface of the planet by happenstance. Uh, I get into all of that stuff in, in Grid of the Gods. Um, okay. But it's, yeah, I, I have no difficulty with that. I, that's precisely what I think is going on. Wonderful. Joseph P. Farrell, thank you very much. It's been wonderful talking with you. Uh, the book, for those of you who haven't read it, is Giza Death Star. I want to suggest you uh, that you go to uh, Joe's um, website. It's uh, GizaDeathStar.com. And, and by the way, uh, it, it's packed, filled with material. Uh, Joe comments on a number of uh, topics. Uh, all of his books are there. We're going to have to have you back because I didn't realize you're fairly prolific, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to uh, you write a book a year almost. Actually, on average, I've been batting out about two a year, but I've slowed down in, in the last couple of years. Okay, good. Uh, is uh, uh, are you going to be speaking at any events? Uh, what what can people know learn about you? What where can they go to learn more about you? Uh, they can go to the website. Uh, pretty much, I'm an open book. I I won't be speaking. I haven't uh, been invited to speak at any events uh, this year. Um, I'm kind of persona non grata in a lot of different crowds within the okay. alternative. What, 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 why is that? <laughs> Tell me. I, I got to know. Well, uh, pyramids as Death Stars, and I'm, I'm not a big UFO ET guy. Uh, you know, um, one of my one of my uh, better known books is a book called Roswell and the Reich, which <laughs> which Uh-oh. has. Yeah, which is met with silence, deafening silence. <laughs> uh oh, you spoke up against Roswell, and and it's not, it wasn't ETs, it was somebody else. It was somebody else, huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> that could be a problem. Yeah, I can see why that could be a problem. problem. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, your topics are good. They're well researched. They're highly readable, and and uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with me. Well, thanks for having me on. You know, even though Egyptologists say they know what's going on, they really are guessing at most of the um, data, unless it's been written and scribed and it is in some kind of uh, understandable historical document of some kind. We have no clue what the 
what the Great uh, Pyramid is all about. And there's a few writings about the Cheops Pyramid. We have a cartouche. And, you know, it's really funny. Uh, it's it's almost, it's not real science. And this is the real problem with, with archaeology and Egyptology. That they're more social sciences. They're not real dedicated scientists. And those of you who are anthropologists or archaeologists, this is not demeaning your work because I appreciate your work. But let's be honest. You know, a lot of this... Uh, so-called truth about the Great Pyramid is is a guess. It's a complete guess. And I think there should be more openness. I think, and, it, and, and, and there are other sciences that are trying to emerge into Egyptology. I think when you start looking at a multidisciplinary approach, you get real great information. I mean, I've mentioned this before. There was a a team of scientists, uh, physicists, uh, scanning experts, that it was called Scan Pyramid. And they scanned the interior, exterior. They found a number of voids that were very suspicious. But once they published their analysis, we never heard from them again. And to this day, and, and they spent several million, uh, millions of dollars in pursuit of knowing more about the pyramid. And it's, I don't know if it's Egyptian archaeologists or the Egyptian Antiquities Department uh, or just uh, Egyptologists as a whole. Anything that is uh, uh, moves away from their narrative is suspicious, is uh, immediately downcast, is immediately considered wrong. I'm tired of it. I really am. Why can't these damn guys get together with other scientists and really go to work on the pyramid because you know it opens up to huge amounts of speculation look at uh, Farrell. he wrote this book the Giza death star based on some writings he found you know i mean he he's uh, speculating as well but there's no real grounded solid evidence of who really built it and more importantly when how old is the great pyramid i got to tell you i've been in it five times now, and every time I go into this thing, I'm just totally amazed. I'm amazed that, number one, they consider it a tomb, because I got to tell you this, when you uh, enter the pyramid, you don't enter it through whatever the opening design was. We pass through an opening that was blasted (laughs) into the to the bedrock, the carved stone, and enter an interior chamber. And we enter the lower, what they call gallery. And when you're in this gallery, you're looking in and going, there's no way they can bring, you can't, it's, you can't bring any kind of sarcophagus. You can't bring any kind of uh, group in there. You have to single file. It's not a tomb. It's not a tomb. And then you go up the gallery when you want to enter these two chambers, which are now have been uh, assigned to the king and queen's uh, chamber. They're not tombs. There's no tomb in there. They're acoustic rooms that had equipment in them. Now, one of the rooms, the king's chamber, 
has a a stone box that was cut into the to, cut into the um, to the base and is uh, solid. It's a solid opening. It's a solid box uh, that I think some form of equipment was in there. This is how they can claim it was a tomb because it it's an open box without a lid. It's uh, granite. And uh, people go into that box and they will do meditations and <laughs> things like that. But there is nothing to consider that this is a tomb. And I, I just wish the Egyptological community would open their minds a little bit. And this is going to be one of those situations where we find a document, uh, perhaps at some point, They'll explore that one cavity that was found in the upper quadrants of the pyramid. And lo and behold, they'll find some uh, documents. Or as uh, Robert Schock likes to say, you've opened the chamber that's in the front of the, uh, the Sphinx left paw. And all of a sudden you find documents that really begin giving us some information. These guys just guess. They're, they're, they're guessed, guessing what's going on. And this goes where... Uh, for uh, the Mayanists too, the, they're they're guessing for uh, the the most part. The bigger problem with the Maya is the fact that these archaeologists, these Mayanists, have flat out refused to work with the the millions of uh, Maya that are li- living today. The, the the remaining scientists, or they call them day keepers, and kind of going, "Hey, what do you think about this theory? What do you think?" What do you think about this discovery? What do you think this artifact is? Can you imagine what kind of enlightenment we would get if we were to work with the indigenous people of, of Mexico, the, the original Maya? What would happen if the Egyptologists were to work with the indigenous people that are remaining in uh, in present-day Egypt? <laughs> God. Lo and behold, we might have some real science. We might have some real discoveries that are that are coming out of this. Maybe I'm just uh, pie in the sky on this, and we should just accept what National Geographic tells us. <laughs> or the Smithsonian. Yes, the Smithsonian. So, anyhow. Hey, we do tours on Earth Ancients. We got one coming up. Grand Egyptian Tour, May 2nd through the 14th. We meet in Cairo, and then we are bussed to some of the most outstanding, uh, revelatory uh, places that you'll ever visit. And when I say this, these are out-of-the-box tours. And when I say out-of-the-box, bo- out we're not going to see Sphinx, the pyramid, as a general public. Uh, we're not going to uh, visit any of these places that are on the uh, itinerary as a general public uh, tourist. We go and see these things as private tourists. And that means that we see temples, we see pyramids, not just from a spectator's point of view, we interact with them. And what that means is that we uh, go inside pyramids. Uh, We have two plus hours to go into the Cheops Pyramid without the general public. And I got to tell you, and Muhammad, our tour host, will mention this, when you give the the pyramids a chance to uh, recalibrate after all the people have sucked all the energy in, 
you can feel it. it's sitting on some kind of energetic vortex or a ley line if you're into the ley lines. And when you go in there and you sit inside the, the Great Pyramid, you can feel it. It's like you're plugged into a low current battery. It's the damnedest thing. So we go to we go to the pyramids, we go to the temples, we go to Elephantine Island and see uh, the ruins there. We go to Luxor, we go to Hathor, Dendera. We, we go all all over the place, but we do it privately and we do it uh, uh, with elegance and we do it with grace. And it is considered a VIP tour for a, a beer budget price. <laughs> I love to say that because I love beer. This is the tour of the year uh, that we do. And it is 12 days of tremendous enjoyment, 12 days of a spectacular uh, revelation, and it's an eye-opener from, from start to finish. For more information, to see our itinerary, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours. Get your registration in. We're almost there. I think we're up to 25. We're going to take a few more people. We can't really take more than 30 because we want to have one bus, and these are very intimate tours. People really get to know each other. You have transformational experiences, you have meditative experiences, you have consciousness-raising experiences. These are the tours to consider. So that's the Grand Egyptian Tour, May 2nd to the 14th, 2023. And uh, I've been talking about it. Our second tour this year is in November. It's November 10th through the 17th. It's our ancient Maya of Tabasco and Chiapas, Mexico. We're with Dr. Edwin Barnhard. That's going to be great, too, because I haven't been to Verahamosa or La Venta where these uh, Olmec ruins are. The outdoors uh, museum is world-class. You'll never see artifacts from the Olmec like this uh, again. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Then we go to the ruins. We go to Palenque, and then he's selected three other major, major cities Hard-pressed to take more than a week off. Consider that tour, uh, November 10th to the 17th. For more information on that and the Egyptian tour, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours. We're going to have a blast, and it's really, really fun. And I get a chance to meet you guys, too, so that's important for me. So come on, check it out. Hey, I mentioned this. Earth Ancients is a sponsor of the Contact in the Desert Conference, that includes Graham Hancock, Dr. A.V. Loeb, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, Nick Pope. Uh, I want to see uh, Richard Dolan. I haven't interviewed him yet, and he's a fascinating guy. And then there's a lot of these up-and-coming types like Andrew Gilmore, who um, works with DMT. Now, one of the things about Gilmore is that he is apparently working to uh, highlight uh, the injection so that everybody can connect. He does these groups and people can connect and try to uh, work with uh, off world types. So there's kind of a, a alien UFO theme in a way, but it's gotten more into the science and the future aspect. So, so contact, contact in the desert is June 2nd to the 4th. It's held in Palm desert. You fly into Palm Springs or you can fly into LA Los Angeles, and then drive out to it. Um, go to contactinthedesert.com and look at the amazing uh, uh, 
lineup of people. It was about 70 speakers from around the world. It's in a great hotel, uh, the Renaissance uh, Hotel. It's a resort, actually. And this is an important conference. I think, without a doubt, it's one of the best in the United States, if not the best. And, uh, well, there's a lot of regulars that you can hear. People like Hugh Newman, Andrew Collins, and, and, and others who have been on Earth Ancient. So we're a sponsor, so I'll be there. Come on by and say hey. Uh, but check out this this um, this summer conference, June 2nd through the 4th, Content in the Desert. And uh, Hancock is worth the price of admission right there. And uh, he's going to be talking not only uh, about uh, ancient arc, uh, apocalypse, but a lot of other things, uh, including probably some of the new material that he's working on currently. So contactinthedesert.com, one of the best conferences in the United States. All right, that's it for this program. I want to thank my guest, Joe Farrell. God, that was a while ago. And always the team of Ruth Thomas, Mark Foster, and everyone else who makes this thing happen. You guys rock. You do. All right, take care, be well, and we will talk to you next time.